especially as is fitting, I think, rising from a feast at its close, these words of the last verse, you, Daniel, go your way until the end, for you shall rest, and you will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Now the second half of the book of Daniel from chapter 7 onwards tends to be, to use the words here, a bit of a closed book uh, to many people. The first six, of course, not so much so. But in the second half of the book, what you have is a series of four visions which were given to Daniel in one year. And as I mentioned at the beginning, he was an old man when he got these visions, somewhere perhaps around 85 years of age. And of the four visions that he got, this is the last one, and it's by far the most detailed one, as you would discover particularly if you read chapter 11. It actually begins at chapter 10 with the reading that we read first of all, and it continues until the main part of chapter 12. And then you have this conclusion at the end. Now the vision contains, as I mentioned, astonishing detail about the political events and upheavals that would take place from Daniel's time in the 6th century right through to the time of Christ. And then in less detail, it peers beyond that until the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. But I, what I want you to notice, first of all, and myself too, is that this vision and all the details that it contains was given to Daniel as an answer to prayer. Now, it's quite easy to overlook that, but if you read the passage carefully, you'll see that's so. It's not the case that he got the vision first and then prayed, but he prayed first and he got the vision. In fact, after telling us he was beside the river, which was one of the places for prayer uh, amongst God's people, he tells us that there were several men gathered together with him. Now, I would imagine that they were people of a like mind, people who saw what he saw and felt what he felt and shared the same spiritual burdens, people of prayer like himself, and he took them with him to the side of the river Tigris, that great river which flows uh, through Babylon. Now, these men, Daniel included, humbled themselves and they fasted as they prayed for three weeks. Um, they ate no pleasant food, that is, no meats and no wine for three whole weeks or 21 days. Sometimes you find a reference here to 21 days and you forget that it's the same as the three weeks. So let's just bear that in mind. So for three weeks or 21 days, they ate no meat or wine. Now, um, I don't want to go into that in any par particular detail right now, but just in connection with fasting, I, I think it's important to understand that whenever we feel called to fast, uh, by the Lord, when there's an occasion for it, a need for it. Um, it's important to remember that it doesn't always mean that you take absolutely nothing during the time of your fast. You'll notice that this was a selective fast. It was an, an abstinence from pleasant foods like meats and wines. 
so it's useful to bear that in mind. It doesn't always have to be a complete fast, especially if, if you have a particular health condition. It's good to remember that fasting has its value even if you only abstain from meats and wines. Now, there was a reason for this time of fasting and prayer. And it arose out of the deep concern that Daniel had himself, and I assume the men he took with him. The deep concern he had for the people of God as a whole, uh, especially in the days that were still to come. And of course, when the angel at last came to him, he said, I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, because he says the vision refers to many days yet to come. Now, Daniel's, in that respect, probably like yourself and myself. Sometimes we see the times and we see the condition of the Lord's cause and the Lord's people, and perhaps we are prone to worry, to feel a burden, and like Daniel did, we need sometimes to take it in a special way to the Lord. And Daniel and these people had three special concerns. First of all, that there was still a lack of zeal amongst many of the Lord's people. To understand that, we need to understand the context a little wider. Just before this, the people of God had amazingly been given permission to leave Babylon. The captivity was over and they had the opportunity to return. King Cyrus had decreed that, and it was a wonderful day. And Psalm 126 records how God's people felt when their liberty had come, when the chains and the shackles were off. When Zion's bondage, the people who were held in bondage, God turned back and took back like men that dreamed were we. Then filled with laughter was our mouth, our tongue, with melody. There was only one downside to it, and that was that only about 50,000 of these exiles returned. Now, that's a large number to us, but in terms of the number of people who were in exile, it wasn't so large. The fact of the matter is that too many stayed, either in Persia, in Iran, or in the district of Babylon. Now, I'm conscious that Daniel himself stayed. He never came back when the captives came back. But it's quite clear that Daniel had a call as a prophet to remain exactly where he was, working in the government of the Persian Empire. God gave him a special call to do that, but that was not the case in connection with the rest of the people who stayed. The fact of the matter is, as you know and as I know, and none of us are probably immune from this, they felt too comfortable and were not willing to up sticks and go back to where they had come from. For some reason, their affection for the Holy Land was not as strong as it ought to be. I've no doubt that materialism and wealth can do that kind of thing to people. Uh, you've got to watch it all the time. It dulls your spiritual edge. It um, distorts your spiritual vision, makes you take the less spiritual choice, which sometimes has catastrophic consequences for your soul. In fact, there was too much of the lot in Sodom in connection with the people who chose to remain 
behind. Had Lot gone to Sodom as a a missionary with a divine call, it would have been a different matter. More like Daniel. It wasn't the case, and neither was it the case with these. And that troubled Daniel. If you're close to the Lord, you will certainly be troubled by what you perceive as a, a lack of zeal, a lack of spiritual energy and hunger and thirst amongst those who profess the name of the Lord. Now, Daniel was grieved by that first. The second thing he was grieved by was the hostility that those who returned to Jerusalem were suffering. Now, I'm quite sure that Daniel, in these respects, was no different, again, from how you often feel and I do too. We have expectations that certain things will be the case, and when they're not, we're really disappointed. And when we're disappointed, well, all kinds of things follow from that spiritually too. But I'm quite sure Daniel expected that God would uh, protect those returning exiles in a very special way. Now, there's no doubt that God did that, but he did it in his own way and in his own time. But strangely enough, Cyrus, who had been so favorable to the Lord's people, was removed for a time, and his um, replacement, whose name I've forgotten, it begins with a C, but I've forgotten it, he came for a year, uh, he was ruling for a year or more, and he was against the people of God, and there was huge pressure being exerted by the people who lived around the Holy Land, pressure up to Persia to change the permission that had been given to the people of God so that the temple would stop being built, that the city of Jerusalem would never be restored again, and that the whole place would remain a wilderness. That was their desire for the promised land. And the hostility was huge. And you'll discover that these exiles who returned and who expected, I'm sure, such ease in building the temple and such ease in restoring the city, ease in doing the work of God, they had nothing of the sort. The Sanballats and the Tobias immediately exerting the pressure, laughing at their exploits and making them feel that the whole thing was so difficult. So Daniel is concerned that the lack of zeal of those who didn't go and the persecution and difficulty that those who went were suffering. The last thing that he was particularly concerned about was what he had seen in his previous vision. That's when God had told him that a day was coming when a second destruction of the temple would come and a second destruction of the city, which would be far, far worse than what they had seen when they went into captivity with awful consequences for the ancient people of God. And when he heard that, he he was stunned by it. And again, it's difficult for us sometimes to put ourselves in these people's shoes. But suppose somebody, a prophet from the Lord, came to yourself and told you that a huge disaster was going to befall this whole island that had serious devastating consequences for all the churches and all the Christians in the island. How would you feel? How would you feel? Well, that helps you to understand how this man of God felt. He loved the Lord's people and their pain was his. Is that not very Christ-like of him? Is that not how Christ is himself? 
and our afflictions mysteriously, he is afflicted. Now God hears the earnest prayers of Daniel and his friends. And after three weeks or 21 days, God grants him first a vision of the exalted Christ. And it's a vision that parallels what John saw many years later in the book of the Revelation. Clothed with linen, his waist girded with gold, his body like beryl, his face like lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. It is a vision of the exalted Christ who is Lord of all. Now, we're told no more about him than that, except that this is in the background and it's above everything else that is said and done. It's meant to console his heart and to to assure him that the Lord reigns and clothed is he with majesty most bright. His works will show him clothed to be and girt about with might. And the floods indeed may lift up their voice against the people of God. But he who sits upon the floods is greater of might by far than the noise of many waters or of great sea billows are. That vision of God's sovereignty is what the disciples saw too many years later when they saw Christ walking on the water. An assurance that he is overseeing the storms and the upheavals. It's what John saw too in the book of Revelation when he was alarmed at the future And the first assurance that he got was that Christ is there overseeing it all. So that's important, very important. The first answer to his prayer is a vision of the exalted Christ. How thankful we are for every reminder that he gives us in a practical way. Even dropping it into our souls powerfully that he does reign and rule over all things. But then again, after that vision of the exalted Christ, there is the arrival of an angel, followed by the arrival of another two angels. But the first angel that arrives is commissioned to give a specific answer to their prayers. And as I mentioned already, the specific answer is an amazingly detailed answer (coughs) concerning the political events that would follow. Uh, As Persia would fall, as Greece would arise, As Greece would fall, Rome would rise. And as the Lord Jesus Christ would come. It's a vision really of all the political events. The shaking of the nations which the prophet refers to until the coming of Christ. And then again to the end of the world. Now before the angel uh, gives the answer to Daniel. And I want you to notice this because it leads to something quite extraordinary really. Before the angel gives the answer, he explains why he's been delayed in his coming. And as he explains his delay, he gives us really an astonishing insight into the spiritual world that is around us and above us. Something that we think of far too little and something we probably know too little about. It's the world of the spiritual conflict that is going on all the time between the angels of light and the angels of darkness. The 
the powers out there, and they're there, and they're real, and they're active. The powers that Paul refers to as the principalities and powers. He says, we're not fighting, he says, against flesh and blood. And we've got to remember that all the time. We're not fighting people. We never really are. Even when we appear to be fighting people, perhaps people in authority, he says we're not really. Our conflict is far higher than that. And he says that we have to remember that. So he tells us to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Three words for strength there. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now here he just mentions the devil as a single entity, a being of immense power and malevolence. But then he goes deeper and wider and he says, for we, he says, don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's in our lives and in our prayers. He said, we are wrestling against principalities and powers, um, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness. Therefore, he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. That's the conflict that we think too little about. The forces arraigned against you are far greater than you could ever imagine. Were the Lord to withdraw himself, you would be crushed in a moment by all of them. That's the fact of the matter. Those are the powers that are arraigned against you, and you have been given spiritual weaponry with which to fight against them. I'll come to that in a second. But what the angel says to Daniel, amazingly, is this. He says, I was sent with this answer 21 days ago. Now, if you work that out, that's the day they actually started praying. The first day they started praying and fasting, the angel says, I was sent with the answer on that day. Now, isn't that a, an amazing thing? And isn't it an encouraging thing? I mean, as the week was passing and as it became two weeks and three weeks, I'm sure they wondered about what answer they would get and would they get an answer, but the answer was on its way. It had been sent, commissioned by God, put into the hand or into the mouth of an angel to be delivered on the very day that they started praying. But then the angel says, I was hindered by the prince of Persia. Now, the prince of Persia here is an allusion to the evil angel or an evil angel or one of the principalities and the powers who has special oversight of the kingdom of Persia. Now, remember that according to Christ, Satan has a kingdom. A kingdom is organized. It's organized by its king. The, the work of evil isn't haphazard in the world. It's not as though there's no plan or system to it. The devil has his principalities and powers who are stationed everywhere with their own assignment and their own work to do. And all the nations of the world are known to him. And 
he tries to advance the cause of darkness and to hinder the cause of light in every kingdom according to its circumstances, the, the role that it's playing in history and so on. When he sees a kingdom rise, he will try to make it fall. By that I mean when he sees it rise spiritually, he will try to make it fall. When a, when a kingdom is going down, he will try and increase the rate at which it goes down. Here you have the prince of Persia. By that he means the evil angel that is governing Persia on Satan's behalf. Now I don't mean that that evil angel has the rule over Persia. God has the rule over all. And God has his own principalities and powers working in the kingdom of Persia too. But the point here right now is that so does the prince of darkness. And the angel says to Daniel that I was unable to come to you, hindered by this being, until I was helped by Michael. Mark Michael, of course, is one of the archangels. He is an angel of light with particular responsibility for the Jewish people. We're told that that angel was commissioned by God to help the angel who had the message to give Daniel so that he wouldn't be hindered any more. Now, friends, there's so much in all that. But let's just take it down to a level what, which maybe we can work with ourselves at the moment. When you think of your own prayers for yourself, think of your prayers for your family, for your congregation, Think of your prayers for the nations of the world. Maybe sometimes you do pray for the nations of the world, and maybe sometimes you think to yourself, well, what's the point in me praying for the nations of the world? I mean, who am I to be interceding about Israel or Palestine? Or who am I to be interceding about Russia and Ukraine or America and what's happening in America or Britain and so on? I mean, is there really the remotest connection between me by my bed, and these countries, and God. Is there really? Or even when I ask and plead for my congregation, or for my family, what power does that prayer have, really? Does it have any power? Does it have any influence with God? Or am I kidding myself in these things? Think of it this way, in connection with where Daniel is. Daniel knows that God's people need help in their return, and he knows that something needs to change in Persia, in government. And so he starts to pray. Because he believes that God uses such prayer in order to change things. Why shouldn't he? He had seen plenty of it in his own life when he came as a young man. I mean, his, his story is as astonishing in some ways as Joseph's. Um, as a young man growing up in Jerusalem, which was backslidden, yes, but it had a godly king when Daniel was young. And uh, what's more, the prophet Jeremiah was preaching when Daniel was a young man. But at the age of around 17, along with the most promising other young men, he was dragged out of the place and put to Babylon. He was put in a university, all right, 
But it wasn't in a university where he would learn much uh, uh, to do with God or anything of that kind. But you know how God favoured him and God used him. And God used him all through his life till he is now 85 years of age promoting the cause of God in the astonishing places in which God placed him. And what marvellous things he saw. He saw the conversion of of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, who was overcome with madness for a time, lived with the beasts of the field like a beast himself, eating grass until his pride was dealt with and he was restored as a person and he became a Christian. And he diverted the energies of Babylon in another direction until another king came in. All for the benefit, somehow, of the people of God. Now, the person who sees that is a person who doesn't think it's a waste of time to pray about the government in Persia. And Christians who believe these things are Christians who believe that it's not a waste of time to pray about the governments in Scotland and even in our own nation. We've seen how first ministers can be removed. And we'll see how other first ministers can be removed. The Lord will take people aside and he will put others in. We must have confidence in that. And the more confidence that we have in that, the more we will pray. And the more we will pray in earnest, the more likely we will be to see the answer of the Lord. And God did hear and he responded. God responded, you'll notice, immediately because, like I said, he sent the angel on day one. From the first day, the angel said that you humbled yourself and started to pray, your words were heard and the wheels were put in motion. But Satan heard the prayer. (coughs) Satan heard the prayer. He always does hear the petitions and the prayers of God's people. He heard the ones we've offered tonight. He heard them. And he knows that it's in his interest that Per shall remain exactly the way it is. And it's in his interest that the hostility against the Jewish people would remain exactly the way it is. That's in Satan's interest. And that's why he commissions his own angels in Persia to resist the angel that's been sent with a message. And you say, how how does that happen? I'm not sure. I don't need to know. All I need to know is that it does happen. It's a very real thing. And for 21 days, God allowed that angel of his own to be resisted by an evil power. You imagine that, an answer to prayer that is actually being hindered by an evil spirit. Think of that for a minute. An answer to prayer that's already been sent is being hindered from reception by the power of an evil spirit. The the devil's motive, like I said, is to keep a kingdom in darkness and to discourage the church of God. To discourage the church of God. After all, the most significant event taking place in the world at this very time is the actual rebuilding of the temple uh, in Jerusalem. Now, 
If you asked anybody in the world what the most significant event taking place in the world would be, I doubt if anybody would say, oh, it's the rebuilding of that Jewish temple in Jerusalem. In fact, some of the Lord's people were looking at this temple being rebuilt and saying, well, this is nothing in comparison with the former one. The former one saw great glory, wonderful things. This one's just not the same. But then the prophet Zechariah is commissioned to tell them that the seven eyes of God are going across the whole world. Seven, of course, is fullness, completion. His seven eyes are going through the whole earth. And the thing that interests him the most, if I can use that expression, is the plumb line that's in the hand of Zerubbabel, the one who is building the wall of this temple. What is it that God thinks important? Do you think our own meeting tonight, I mean, if you were to ask people in Stornoway, where is anything significant happening tonight? I wonder what they would say. I wonder what they would say. But what does God think of every meeting? What does God think of ourselves? What does God think of our prayers? That's the question. And when Daniel and these men gathered together by the riverside to pray, by the way, women sometimes gathered by the riverside to pray too. We're told that Lydia prayed beside the river, uh, along with other women, and Paul went and spoke to them when they prayed. There's, there's great value in men praying together, in women praying together. Sometimes there are things to be prayed for that the one group doesn't need to hear in connection with the other. There are times when the congregation comes together to pray. But when Daniel and these men went out, God valued that. And he valued it highly. And the fact is that God had good in store for his people. And God wanted Daniel to know that. And through Daniel, he wanted the, the people of God to know that. And the devil is trying hard to stop it. I don't know if you noticed that interesting expression in Daniel 10, at the very last um, verses in Daniel 10, and in verse 20, the angel says, then he said, do you know why I have come to you? Now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia, and when I have gone forth, the prince of Greece will come, but I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. The scripture of truth is not a reference to the Bible there. Because what the angel says is something that has never been written in the Bible until he spoke it. The scripture of truth there is a reference to God's eternal decree. And that's a sealed book, you know. No, nobody can see that book. In the book of the Revelation, of course... It's unsealed. Parts of it are unsealed as, as the Lamb of God reveals the future in the book of the Revelation as much as we need to know. Otherwise, God's eternal decree is hidden. It's his book. It's his counsel. It contains everything that comes to pass. And the angel says there's a section of it that I have come to reveal to you. And he comes and reveal these, reveals these things. And, and when he does, Daniel wants to know more. The angel tells him that, that a, a catastrophe will come after a time and times and half a time. It will last for 1,290 days, for three and a half years. That's the siege of Jerusalem from AD 66 to AD 70, 
which ended in the destruction of the city and the temple. But there's another end coming, he says, way beyond that, which remains a mystery. The angel says, good and evil will continue. Many will travel to and fro. And he says that knowledge will increase more and more. An astonishing amount of knowledge will come into the world. But Daniel, none of that is for you. This is your final vision. And my final message for you from God is, go your way. And then he repeats that a second time in the very last verse of the book. These wonderful words, go your way, he says, until the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Now, I'm conscious you may say, well, he's only coming to the text and we're very far gone, but that's not how the sermon is divided. Maybe it's not how it should be divided, but that's how it is divided. It's just now that I want to consider these words in the context of all that. Go, he says, your way. Go your way until the end, for you shall rest and you will arise to your inheritance. There's a time for you to run, Daniel. There's a time for you to rest. And there's a time for you to rise. Time to run. Time to rest. And a time to rise. Time to run. Well, he may be in his mid-80s, but he's still got running to do. The fact of the matter is that twice, mysteriously, after being cast aside for a time, that can happen to us all in our different callings and different ways. We find ourselves cast aside. There was a significant period when nobody consulted Daniel and the government of Babylon until God just took him back in an emergency. And God can do these things. God can do these things all the time. The fact is that, amazingly, he is still in government. And that's still his calling before God. And what the angel is telling him from God is this. uh, No more visions, but just you go your way and get on with your life. Interestingly enough, when he had an awful vision previously, we're told afterwards, and I'll just quote it for you, After this previous vision, he says that I fainted and I was sick for days. Now, notice the effect the word of God had on these people. I fainted and I was sick for days. But afterwards, I got up and I went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Now, the king there is not a reference to God, although we could say he went about that king's business too, but the king here is a reference just to the king of Persia. I got up, he says, and I went about the king's business. You know what struck me about that? It struck me before, but it struck me again today is how little we know of these people's lives. You know, when you think of Daniel from 17, when you're first introduced to him, to his uh, upper 80s or 90 or so, when we last hear of him, there's only a few incidents in his life recorded. I mean, these visions all come to him in one year, from chapter 7 to the end. And in between chapters 1 to 6, there's just four, that's just a handful of incidents. What was he doing the rest of his life? What you do the rest of your life? Uh, our life doesn't consist of a, a series of spectacular encounters with God. It consists of the Lord's still small voice doing its own sanctifying work in our lives as we go about our lives being what? 
husband, wife, mother, father, son, daughter, a doctor, a nurse, a joiner, an electrician, a teacher, whatever. That's your way. That's your way. And you go back to doing your business. I mean, that's what happens tonight. It is wonderful to gather around the table of the Lord. But we've got to get up and to go back to your own way. And for him, it was the king's business and the work of government which can't have been easy in Persia. Now, when we're told to go our own way, um, primarily, of course, that's God's way. It's the way of living out his commandments by his grace. It's walking in the paths of righteousness. But we do have to walk in them, like I said, in our own peculiar providential circumstances. And we need to focus on that life and we need to do it well. And don't be too distracted by others. Now there is a way in which our eyes have to be on others all the time. I mentioned that at a prayer meeting recently, how the writer to the Hebrews tells us to be um, looking out for the interests of others. It's, it's good to do that, and this congregation is full of that. And for that we give God thanks, real thanks, that people are looking out for the interests of others. But there's another way in which you can never afford to be distracted by others. It's, uh, was it John MacLeod, the minister, who referred to that recently when he was preaching on uh, Peter and John? Uh, when Christ told Peter that he was going to die a martyr's death. And uh, Peter immediately turns and he says to Christ, what about this man in connection with John? Now, I've no doubt for myself that when Peter asks that question, he's not asking it out of curiosity. I think he's asking it out of genuine concern for his brother. I don't think any two disciples were as close as John and Peter were to each other. And he had a genuine concern. If he was going to die himself, and if he was going to die a martyr's death, does that mean that John too, perhaps, was going to die that? The Lord said, what is that to you? He said, you follow me. I have no doubt that Christ saw another danger, that Peter would simply be distracted, because Peter was easily Distracted. You follow me, he says, on the path I've appointed for you. And it is a fact. Well, I think anyway, it is true and true for myself that one of the greatest hindrances to our spiritual lives is to be too caught up by others. Their failures, uh, their errors, their, their going out of the way or whatever it is. I don't mean it shouldn't be a concern. I don't mean it shouldn't be a burden in prayer, but I do mean that it shouldn't cause resentment or distress or something that eats away at your spiritual life because somewhere behind it there's a problem that you've got with God's dealings. Watch it. Keep your eyes on yourself in that respect and on your own spiritual life. I read years ago someone who put it in a very quaint and kind of pithy way. They said that what you need in the spiritual life is 20-20 vision. They said too many people have 21-21 vision. Now what he meant by that was that John chapter 21, verse 21, is Peter's question. What about this man? John 20-20 is 
Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And that's what he meant, this man. He said, too many people have 20, 20, 21, 21 vision, looking at others, whereas you need 2020 to look firmly at the Lord. So Daniel has got, in all these questions about the people who never went back, the people who were too lukewarm to go home, and the, the sheer difficulty that the Lord's most wholehearted people were discovering. Now, that's always a mystery. You know, why is it? that the people who are so lukewarm are well off in Babylon and the people who are so zealous for the Lord are suffering so much in Judah. That's always a problem. I, I've never known a time in history when these things are not a problem. But what is that to you, Daniel? You follow me. There's a time to run and what's left of your race at 85 years of age You've still got work to do. Go back to government. There are several people in this congregation who are around that age. And I know that we're all thankful for them as men and women. That none of them show signs of slowing down in the things of the Lord. And they help those who are younger to see a good example. Time to run. But then he says there's a time to rest. It's a twofold rest. First of all, he says effectively to Daniel, he says, you shall rest, yes, in your soul. Here's a man who's loved the Lord from his youth. But the angel here is telling him from God that a time will come when he'll arrive in glory. A wonderful thing, that. And the longer life goes on, and the more full it is of difficulties, sorrows, pains in the body, uh, anxieties about people around us and everything else, the more we value the fact that we are certain one day that restlessness is gone. There are some people who speak about that as though it is true of everyone who is dying. No, it's not true of everyone who is dying. Oh, I'm thankful now that they're at peace. Are they at peace? But for the Lord's people, all these things have gone. Perfect rest arrives, and at last we've got a Sabbath, a cessation, a holy Sabbath. Resting with God, resting with our Savior, and resting with the family of the redeemed. And I touched on it there, but the fact is that rest is one thing that the unbeliever will never have again once they die. Never again. In Revelation 14, we read of two groups of people, one resting and the other simply not resting at all. In Revelation <clears throat> chapter 14, we read, I heard a voice saying, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they rest from their labors and their works follow them. Their works follow them in the sense that they will receive their reward. They've gone to glory. When the day of judgment comes, their works will appear in glory and they will receive their reward. They will rest from their labors and their works do follow them. In the verses immediately before, these are hard to read because we're told of certain people in connection with them that the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. 
It's torment, not torture. The Lord doesn't torture, but they have torment. They have no rest day or night who worshipped the beast and who received the mark of his name. On the other hand, here is the patience of the saints who now rest from their labours and their works do follow them. Go to your rest. Are you anticipating rest? Isn't it wonderful to think tonight, and if you're a Christian, you can think this, that when your eyes close in this world, you are going to rest. No pain, no sorrow, no more trial, no more tears. All that is over. It's finished, and it's gone. Instead, and I I wouldn't want to describe it all as just the absence of all that, It's the presence of the opposite of all that. Everlasting joy shall be upon your heads. And as well as his soul going to rest, he's effectively telling him that his body shall rest too. As the Catechism reminds us, resting in the grave until the resurrection. Everyone who is found written in the book of life Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awaken, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Doesn't matter where your body lies. Doesn't matter in what condition your body lies. It might be exploded in gunfire. It might be mutilated in torture. It could even be dropped in a hammock as many were into the sea, where the lifeless body, as Tennyson said, will toss and tangle with the shells doesn't matter. doesn't matter. The one who brought all its molecules together in the first place and gave it its distinctive DNA will work with the residue of it and he will raise it again and bring it together in the likeness of his own glorious body. And until that happens, it is mystically and mysteriously united to Christ. And that's exactly where it remains. And somewhere today in the Holy Land, no, not necessarily in the Holy Land, I don't know exactly where, but the body of Daniel lies. It lies. And God knows where it is, and it is united to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that body will rise. And after all, that's the third thing that God says. He says to him, go your way for now until the end. For you shall rest. Your body rests. And you will arise to your inheritance at the end of the day. Where do you rise from? Well, of course, from the grave. Of course, from the grave. You'll awaken from the grave. You will arise when God reconstitutes your body. Your eyes will open. Job said famously when he was expecting to die himself, there was a point at which he thought he was going to die. And um, he said that nonetheless, he said, I know that in my flesh I shall see God. That with these eyes I shall see God. Isn't that a wonderful statement of resurrection hope from a people from a person who was dying of sickness long before Moses and these people ever appeared on the earth? One of the ancient patriarchs of God, the man called Job, with my eyes, he says, I shall see God. And of course, when you rise, your body too won't have any sign of sickness, no scars. 
No sign of illness, no sign of deformity, no sign of disability. The Bible tells us that it's a body that is forged, reformed in the likeness of his glorious body. That's where we rise from. What do we rise to? To an inheritance. As the word means an allotment. What is your allotment? Well, God is of my inheritance and cup the portion. Every priest could say that. The, the Levites weren't given a, a piece of land, you remember. All the other tribes were, but not the Levites. They were to be scattered throughout the land as teachers of God's word. And the Bible tells us that God was to be their portion. They, they were to be satisfied with having a portion from the Lord. And that's the language that Christ uses in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's been reduced to the point where he has nothing except a burden of sin on his back and a cup is being offered to him that is full of hell. But he sees beyond that, God is of my inheritance and cup the portion, the lot that fallen is to me, thou dost maintain alone. I know that there's that I'm not finished here. Everybody will think I'm finished here, but I'm not finished here. There is joy at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. And he says, I know that you are keeping that allotment for me. Now, all of us have an allotment. God is our inheritance and our portion. But in that heavenly inheritance, there's an allotment for you and an allotment for me. Or if you like, a portion for you and for me. God assigned it for you. Christ purchased your lot for you. And God maintains that lot in glory. A personal portion. Um, there's so much in that that I'm not going to go into because I went into it recently actually at a prayer meeting and I don't have time. It's the other one. But the fact of the matter is that just as God assigned your portion in this life, Yours is not mine, mine is not yours. We're all here individually with our individual portion in this life. That doesn't change in the world to come. We all receive the fullness of God as our portion. What Paul calls an exceeding eternal weight of glory. It's one of the few occasions in the Bible where you can tell that Paul feels the constraints of language. And he finds hyperbolic terms one after another, to say exceeding, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We thought about the weight of the sin that lay upon the Lord. Think upon the weight of glory that comes upon ourselves. It is such a weight of glory that we need a completely renewed soul and a new body to accommodate it. It is as wonderful as that. But it is yours and it is mine. Our path in heaven is given to us by God. Our portion. When you enter it, God knows. Who you'll see, God knows. When you see them, God knows. The order in which you see them, God knows. What you share, God knows. When you share it, God knows. Who shares what with you and when, God knows. It's your portion. The one who made you so wonderfully and intricately in this life is the one who looks at the same intricate wonder in the life to come and gives you exactly what you need in your portion. 
Isn't that a wonderful thought? It's not as though it's all the same for us all, because if you understand what I mean, if it was all the same for us all, it, um, it would be different. It wouldn't be different. What we need is something that is for ourselves. And that is what God gives your allotment. He has assigned your portion and he has assigned Daniel's too. And what will that be? Well, we're told really what it will be. Because in verse 3 here of chapter 12, we're told that those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. Well, Daniel was exceedingly wise. And he was wise because he feared the Lord. It doesn't mean smart or clever. It means wise. Because he exceedingly feared the Lord. And we're told again and again that God gave him that wisdom. And as well as that, we're told in verse 3, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness, they will shine like the stars forever. Daniel will shine brightly in glory. And um, how do you know that you love Daniel? Well, because you don't resent that. When you really love somebody, you, you, even, you love the thought that somehow they will shine brighter than yourself. Or that their status or whatever it is will be higher than your own. You're not annoyed about that. You're glad about that. And I'm glad that this young man who served the Lord in his youth uh, so faithfully uh, will shine like the stars in heaven himself. And the wise and godly old man goes back to his earthly role as an advisor to Cyrus. And in some ways, later, just a few years later, when the rebuilding of the temple resumes through the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, you've got to root that back to the prayers of Daniel and his, and his old men. You've got to really root it back to that. And uh, let's remember these things when we pray. The fact of the matter is that our prayers make a difference to the rising and falling of kings and queens, even in lands other than our own. Think about that next time you bend your knees and you call upon God in prayer. There are legions there hearing on God's behalf. There are legions there hearing on the devil's behalf but your prayers will prevail. There may be a time before they are answered, but your prayers will prevail. Let us pray. O Lord, we are thankful that he who is for us is greater than he who is against us and all who are against us. And God be for us who can be against us. How wonderful a thing it is to be able to pray to the greatest power in the universe who is over it all and who hears the petitions of his people. Oh, may we never lapse into thinking that our petitions are of no consequence and that they are not heard. Truly, prayer does work and there is power in it. Part us tonight with your blessing. 
help us all to go our way until our own end comes, until we enter into rest and rise up to receive our inheritance at the end of the days. In Christ's name, Amen. Uh, let's close in Psalm 73. And uh, verse 23. Psalm 73 at verse 23. <clears throat> Nevertheless, continually, O Lord, I am with thee. Thou dost me hold by my right hand and still upholdest me. And thou with thy counsel while I live wilt me conduct and guide unto thy glory afterward. Receive me to abide. Four stanzas, 23 to 26, we stand to sing them.